It's a Wednesday in July, 1966, in the bargain basement of Gimbel's flagship store in Manhattan. A pregnant young woman in a paisley maxi skirt exits the women's restroom and walks down the middle aisle of the store. As she nears the doors to the subway, she casually looks back, as if to see if anyone has noticed her. At that moment, another shopper opens the door in front of her, and the two women collide. Concerned onlookers rush to the pregnant woman's aid, and one of them gasps, pointing at the woman's now lopsided baby bump. She's hurt! The pregnant woman scrambles to her feet with remarkable agility. No, I'm, I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. But then she spots a tall woman with a walkie-talkie clipped to her skirt, striding purposefully towards her. Security! With both hands, the shoplifter yanks the bundle of loot from beneath her maxi and sprints for the doors, disappearing into the underground passage leading to the Herald Square subway. A few days later, Chairman Bruce Gimbel gets a first-hand look at the problem that's eating away at his flagship store's profits. The store's chief detective points to the doors leading to the subway and others leading to a pedestrian tunnel linked to Penn Station. Mr. Gimbel, the basement has the highest shoplifting rate of any department in any store in the city. It's like we have a sign that says, carrying stolen Gimbel's property this way out. Bruce doesn't laugh. At 53, he's suntanned and boyish, but preoccupied. He's thinking about his father, Bernie, who has cancer. You know, my father came up with this outlandish idea. The subway store, the first bargain basement in the city. He used to come down here and wait for out-of-towners fresh off a train, still lugging their suitcases. He loved the look of wonder on their faces. The detective knows Bernie Gimble. He's the famous Gimble, the one who took big risks, like taking on Macy's in New York. Amazing man, your father. I'm so sorry he's sick. Bruce lingers in the subway store. Grease streaks the heavy glass doors. Scuff marks crisscross the bottom of a checkout counter. Bruce knows this violates a sacred rule of retail. The flagship store is your showcase. If it looks run down, your brand suffers. But updating Herald Square's bargain basement is just one project on a very long list. Gimbel's is overdue to build more suburban stores, upgrade its merchandise, recruit fresh executive talent, At the same time, a new breed of discounters like Corvettes and Kmart are poised to siphon off customers by opening their doors in suburban shopping hubs. Old-fashioned Gimbel's is getting hammered on all fronts. Bruce wants to do something big to turn things around like his father did, but he doesn't know what. Two months later, Bernie Gimbel dies. Alone and grieving, Bruce is more confused than ever. He knows if he doesn't act soon, his family's business could go under. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, Gimbel's boosted profits by stockpiling goods likely to be scarce in wartime. 
and by hiring the brilliant copywriter who once worked for Macy's. And Macy's lost traction when a series of price wars resulted in the store's first annual loss ever. But now, at the end of the 60s, the tables have turned. Customers are increasingly fleeing cities, and Macy's suburban growth strategy is paying off. Meanwhile, Gimbel's hasn't kept pace. It's failed to establish anchor stores and malls, and its merchandise feels stale. Now, most of the latest generation of Gimbel's pay scant attention to the family business. The company lacks fresh recruits in its executive ranks, and its flagship store desperately needs a head-to-toe update. But Chairman Bruce Gimbel doesn't have a plan to change that. This is Episode 6, Last Store Standing. August 4th, 1966, in the chairman's office of Gimbel's Herald Square. A young man in a blue pinstripe suit stands nervously at the front of the wood-paneled room next to three easels holding maps. He turns to Bruce Gimbel with an eager smile. Mr. Gimbel, feel free to come over and get a closer look. Bruce gets up to look at the maps and blueprints. They're for a new store that the real estate management company is proposing he build right here in Manhattan on the Tony Upper East Side. Bruce points to the map and turns back to the rep. What makes the Upper East Side a better location for a new Gimbel's than the Upper West Side? The Upper East Side is the richest suburb in the world. The West can't touch it. That's what I figured. He's been eyeing the posh neighborhood, too, ever since he heard Bloomingdale's was interested in cornering the trophy wife market there. He can just picture the new modern store he'd design out of white Carrera marble. After the rep leaves... Bruce gives his secretary an assignment. Send over that new retail analyst and get Mr. Zintz in my office, too. One hour later, Gimbel's Herald Square president Bernard Zintz arrives on the 10th floor along with a young analyst. Bruce motions for them to sit and launches in. I want to get your thoughts on opening a new store on East 86th and Lexington. Zintz is 53, but his crew cut is already going silver. He has a fatherly presence. Bruce, building in New York is ruinously expensive. You know that. We could update this flagship and build four stores in the suburbs for what we'd spend for an Upper East Side location. Bruce flicks an invisible speck of dust off his desk blotter. He appreciates Zint's honesty, but thinks he lacks imagination. Of course, but let's face it. We can't beat these new discount stores like Kmart and Corvettes. We need to offer better merchandise than they do, but still at a decent price and in a flashier store. I want to change the whole playbook here. The analyst wanders over to the charts and takes a pen and pad from his coat pocket. He jots down some numbers. Zintz concentrates on Bruce. He is dead certain this New York store would be a vanity project. Bruce, you know we'd have to come up with a whole new upscale concept for Gimbel's, right? We'd be aiming at much wealthier customers than we've traditionally gone for here. I just don't see it fitting with our brand. The analyst stops writing and timidly ventures an opinion. Mr. Gimbel, just a ballpark figure here, but you'd have to make at least $125 a square foot per year just to break even. I don't have to tell you that's, well, that's really a lot. But Bruce has heard enough. 
After they leave, he turns around and gazes at the oil painting of his stern-faced grandfather, Isaac Gimbel, that hangs behind his desk. Isaac hadn't wanted to build the store in New York. Bruce's father practically had to trick Isaac into it because the senior Gimbel wanted to live large. Bruce is 53 years old. He still has time to make his mark. So a few months later, despite virtually everyone in the company advising him against it, Bruce greenlights the new Gimbel's East. But as Bernard Zintz had feared, between financing problems and construction delays, the building costs for the new Upper East Side Gimbel's soar. Two years in, Bruce's pet project is not looking good, not by a long shot. And Macy's, meanwhile, is breaking all the traditional rules and taking off in a bold new direction. San Francisco, 1970. Macy's new California division president, Ed Finkelstein, is meeting up with local buyers about their strategy. As they gaze at sales projections, one buyer pipes up. Here's the deal. The demographics show there are going to be fewer teenagers over the next few years. Given that, how do we reposition the junior wear department? Another buyer tosses out an idea. True, maybe there will be fewer teens, but I think there's going to be a new segment of older women who aren't junior-sized customers but still think of themselves as youthful and that their life and clothes should reflect that. Ed Finkelstein sits up straight and starts to write furiously on the notepad he always carries with him. He's 45 with the stocky build of a former athlete who's taken too many lunch meetings. He turns back to the buyer. Heidi, it's Heidi, right? You just said that we shouldn't think about junior clothes as a smaller size for small women or for teens, but that they're also a style, a way women see themselves, right? Heidi's startled by the boss's sudden attention, but she decides to go out on a limb. Yes, Mr. Finkelstein, I think that's important. My mom doesn't shop in the women's department here because she thinks the clothes look too staid, too old for her. This is a breakthrough moment. Finkelstein can feel it. He jumps up and starts writing ideas as fast as he can on the conference room whiteboard. Young, fit, vivacious, just as old as you feel. Help me out here. The team tosses around some ideas. Ultimately, they come up with a new concept for the San Francisco branch. They call it the Young Collectors, a hipper, more youthful showcase for women's fashion. The vision of older customers feeling youthful inspires another revolutionary idea. Finkelstein comes up with a new plan to reincarnate the dustiest section of Macy's. It's a typically breezy March day in 1971 in San Francisco. Two women are shopping at Macy's during their lunch break. Wait, before we leave, I want to see if there are any great deals downstairs. Ugh, the basement. Such a waste of time, but... Okay, if it's quick, I've got to get back to the office. The two friends start down the escalator. Oh my God. It's like they've suddenly descended into a farmer's market in Paris. A quaint greengrocer cart with wire baskets is brimming with ripe fruit. Displays designed to look like stores line the double-wide open middle aisle of the floor. It used to be filled with counters of discount junk. Is that a real potter's wheel in the pottery store? Customers who wouldn't be caught dead in a bargain basement like Gimbel's 
go wild for Macy's new concept, The Cellar. An arcade of departments featuring gourmet food, housewares, and candy arranged in dramatic and colorful displays laid out as if shoppers were strolling through a European village. It's so successful, Macy's chairman, Jack Strauss, promotes Finkelstein to president of the ailing New York division. Finkelstein is on a roll. He redoes Macy's Herald Square top to bottom. Within the decade, once stagnant sales rocket from 160 to 450 million dollars, making Macy's the industry leader. Finkelstein succeeds so spectacularly with the whole East Coast region that the press dubs him the originator of the Macy's miracle. But his miracle won't last long. Gimbel's, meanwhile, has fallen from the top tier. Gimbel's Herald Square is a ghost town, and costs for Bruce Gimbel's ritzy Upper East Side Gimbel's are spiraling out of control. There will be a reckoning for this poorly played gamble. The board will see to it. It's May 1971, at the annual meeting of Gimbel's Brothers in New York. Chairman Bruce Gimbel is wrapping up his report on the first quarter earnings. The news isn't good. Net income is down nearly 80%. Bruce has to confess what's eating up profits. Well, people who defaulted on their credit card accounts cost us $6 million last year. An angry member interrupts Bruce. Six million dollars lost to deadbeats? What's going on with your collection department? A computer snafu in collections is the least of Gimbel's problems. The recession is stealing people's jobs and tanking new stores in Milwaukee and Pittsburgh. Even wealthy women are clutching their purses close as they walk past Saks. But the elephant in the room is Bruce's pet project, the new store on East 86th Street. It's been open less than a year, but already it's obvious to everyone, even Bruce, that the upscale Gimbel's East is a fiasco. A New York Times headline sums it up. A born loser. The neighborhood is not as affluent as Bruce Gimbel was led to believe. In fact, the closest foot traffic comes from impoverished East Harlem, whose residents can't afford Gimbel's new upmarket prices. And the store has a peculiar layout. Instead of having escalators in the middle of the store, they are located on the perimeter of the building. This has two effects, neither of them good. Not only does it discourage customers from exploring other departments, but having the escalators by the perimeter opening onto the subway platform allows shoplifters to make a quick getaway. Perhaps most damning is Gimbel's lack of vision. It needs buyers and executives to stock the store with more fashionable merchandise. Shoppers opt for the nearby flashier Bloomingdale's instead. Between 1971 and 1973, Gimbel's stock drops from $50 a share to 10. The end comes fast, and from one of Gimbel's own board members. Lawrence Tisch, a hotel and theater mogul, initiates a takeover. He buys a majority share in Gimbel's with plans to shutter the stores and make a bundle off its undervalued New York real estate. But he's not the only one interested in wrestling Gimbel's away from its founding family. 
It's a late afternoon in March 1973 in the 10th floor corporate suite of Gimbel's, New York. Bruce Gimbel stares at the phone. He's dreading making yet another call that day to his relatives to implore them not to sell their shares to a new potential raider, British American Tobacco. Wearily, he picks up the receiver. Hello, Aunt Carol, it's Bruce. Look, I know you're upset about Larry Tish grabbing a majority share of Gimbel's, but now we have yet another buyer who's trying to get the remaining 49%. It's British American Tobacco. So I'm calling everyone in the family, asking them not to sell. Oh, Bruce, dear, I was so upset about how little that cheapskate Larry Tish offered us. As soon as I could, I told my lawyer to go find a more generous offer for all of our shares, and he found these nice British American tobacco people. Bruce is so angry he's shaking. You what? You did what? He lowers the receiver, then raises it again. He's too patrician to hang up on a relative. I see. I can't believe you would do that without talking to me. Goodbye. He hangs up the phone, leans back in the leather office chair he inherited from his father, and closes his eyes. He knows he's lost. There's no point in fighting to hold on to the company now. Two years after British American Tobacco buys Gimbel's and Sachs, which had merged, Bruce retires. He's 62. The Gimbel family era at Gimbel's is over for good. British American Tobacco restores the Saks Fifth Avenue brand, but neglects Gimbel stores. Thirteen years after they take control of the company, they announce they're closing Gimbel's Brothers. Gimbel's Herald Square's last day is June 19, 1986. But that same day, an astonishing coincidence. As Gimbel's employees glumly ring up their last sales in the Herald Square flagship store, just next door, their rival also faces the end of an era. Ed Finkelstein, the miracle worker who turned Macy's around, is now leading his fellow Macy's executives who want to buy out the company. It's a move worthy of a Shakespearean tragedy. The Strauss family's protege has turned on them. Finkelstein stands at a podium in the Penta Hotel, gazing out at hundreds of faces. 128 years ago, Roland H. Macy started... But then a shareholder stands up and interrupts him. John Gilbert here. I'm dressed for two funerals today, Macy's and Gimbel's. I never wish anyone any ill will, but I think you'll go down the drain with this deal. Uh, thanks, John, for your always unique comments. As I was saying, 128 years ago, Roland H. Macy started an innovative dry goods store on 14th Street. He refused to haggle on price, which is what made Macy's different and the customers liked it. As Finkelstein drones on, administrators tally votes on the takeover. Former Macy's director Ken Strauss hunches over in his seat in the back of the room, his head resting on clenched fists. He is the last Strauss to lead the company his family has owned for nearly a century. Ed Finkelstein never even mentions their name. That day, Finkelstein pulls off the largest leveraged buyout in retail history. 
His coup comes on the same day Gimbel shutters its Herald Square headquarters. It's a dramatic conclusion to the story of the merchant princes who built these retail empires. When Finkelstein closed the deal on Macy's with smug satisfaction, he had no clue what was coming. Online shopping, fast fashion, drone delivery, or that a conglomerate like Federated Department Stores would buy Macy's just nine years later. As national corporations standardize their stores and stock, it becomes harder to define what distinguishes one department store from another, and it's a struggle for the survivors. Macy's, Saks, Nordstrom's, and Neiman Marcus still have the status of brick-and-mortar stores, but they also depend on online shoppers. And even with consolidation, department stores are suffering. Between 2007 and 2018, sales plummeted 30% to $52 billion. Only bookstores did worse. Looking back, there's no single cause for the demise of the traditional department store. But the decline of the middle class, the people they once targeted, plays a big part. Gimbel's and Macy's once taught them what to buy, how to furnish their homes, and what to aspire to. Now Instagram influencers corner that market. Going forward, Macy's plans to shutter 100 stores as their leases expire. As shoppers leave with their bargains, most will have no idea that their bulging bags emblazoned with red stars or an homage to the young Nantucket whaler who started it all. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I hope you enjoyed this series, and I invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey and tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Barbara Bogave wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. <laughs>